Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and this is the uh, Centered from Reality podcast. Um, I don't know if you guys remember me. Um, it's clearly, you know, been a little bit. Sorry, been a shit, shit, kind of shitty uh, podcast host lately. So, I apologize. But anyways, been fairly sparse with my recordings lately. So don't hold too much against me. It's been a busy couple weeks. A lot going on. And I guess my excuse we'll use for the time being is that I was telling someone, oh, maybe last Thursday, that I kind of enjoy just reading and listening and talking to people more and more and then recording a podcast less frequently, but with more nuance and more time to really put my ideas together. You know, in the past, sometimes I like to just throw out an episode. Sometimes the thoughts are half-baked. Sometimes they're fully developed and fully put in that oven, and uh, it can be kind of hit or miss. And so I kind of enjoy being more productive with my thoughts. And, you know, the midterms are tomorrow as well. So I thought it might be a good time to go over some final thoughts, takeaways, analysis, rants, whatever, just to kind of prepare listeners and even myself for kind of what's going on tomorrow, because there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think there's going to be a lot of uncertainty for a while to go. And while I think these midterms are extremely important, I think it might be weeks before we get some of the results, especially if there's runoffs in in races like what's happening in Georgia between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock, for example. And I think there's going to be heightened tension, you know, especially after the attack on Paul Pelosi over a week ago, how the Republican Party is now basically just basically just using conspiracies and not willing to call out their own. You know, it's been pretty bad. It's troubling. Uh, Things are on kind of a razor's edge right now. And I'm just troubled because, you know, side note, when a party is not willing to criticize its worst instincts or the people that are doing bad things inside of it, it's not good for democracy. You know, John McCain, when when he was at a, I guess we could call it a rally, when someone called Obama a Muslim and, you know, he wasn't born in the U.S., McCain spoke out and said it doesn't matter if he's a Muslim or not. And, you know, George W. Bush, after 9-11, said let's not do hate crimes and attacks on the Muslims of the United States because of what happened. You know, you need leaders inside of the party, even as flawed as Bush was. You need leaders inside of the party who are willing to call out the fringe because if you don't, then the fringe gets worse. And that's what we've seen now, you know, and I don't know if I agree with all the existentialism that like Biden's done. I think it might be a little overblown. But at the same time, I do think we have a party that is not willing to call out its extremes. And because of that, the extremes have now kind of taken over the moderates. And now the fringes of the Republican Party are the people that just don't like where it's going. And so, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's very interesting. Um, anyways, a few few notes on life and everything before I get going in the in the podcast here. A bit a bit nervous taking a consular fellow test for the State Department next week. I really hope I can get this position, even though it probably wouldn't even start until February, because. They're calling for someone who speaks Spanish or Mandarin, which I don't speak Mandarin, but I speak Spanish. And so that means you would be probably working in an embassy for two to three years in some place that speaks Spanish. So that would be really awesome. And weather in Chicago is very ever-changing. Went with my mom to an Ohio State versus Northwestern game. Uh, Sorry, we got a car honking. Uh, Anyways, I, I went with my mom to an Ohio State versus Northwestern game over the weekend. And it started out 70s, humid. Then it rained and it was 65 on us, started pouring on us in the bleachers, and uh, we got completely soaked. And then as soon as we were soaked, the rain stopped and it dropped to, you know, about 48 degrees and started blowing icy wind. Very cold. Very, very fucking cold. Um, Not my favorite. 
And of course, Northwestern uh, was up 7-0 and ended up losing 21-7. Not surprising, but it was just a game of lost hope, chaotic weather, and cold. But that's a whole other story. So anyways, getting into the meat of everything, today is Monday, Monday afternoon, a little bit later release than I was hoping, but whatever. And this kind of feels like the calm before the midterms, the calm before the storm. And I'm going to have an early dinner tomorrow on Tuesday and then just sit back and watch whatever happens. And I'm sure a lot's going to happen. So it's always, uh, it's always pretty fascinating. And there's a lot of interesting races. And I'm curious to see how people end up voting. I mean, I, I would imagine most people have made up their minds now. I saw just a few minutes ago that over 30 million people have already cast their votes and they've been counted. Obviously, there are, I guess, some independents who haven't made their minds up yet. I haven't met many. You know, in this kind of divided world, there's not many people by this point who I think haven't made their minds up. I mean, obviously, I'm torn on some of the candidates, but generally, like, I was talking to my mom. She had some questions on voting in Nevada, and I'm like, I'm generally not voting for anyone who either endorsed Trump's election lies or wants to overturn, I mean, wants to completely outlaw abortion and wants to change how votes are counted. I'm For me, that's kind of the red line right now. And so if there's people, obviously voting on the economy is difficult. I wouldn't vote for a far left progressive, but generally speaking, I think most people do have an idea of what they want at this time. Anyways, um, of course, the worst case scenario is that Democrats lose both the House and the Senate, and Biden is basically a joke of a president for the next two years. And, I mean, there's, there's a likelihood that would happen. But it's not as high as the Republicans basically taking back the House, which is very almost guaranteed. And somehow the Democrats hold on to the Senate or at least don't lose too many seats. And, I mean, it's really tough. All, some of these races have gotten so close. You know, for example, in Nevada, this morning I saw the race between Laxalt and Cortez Masto for the Senate. Masto is the incumbent is really a toss-up. I think it was like Laxalt had like 51 and uh, Cortez Masto had like 47. And uh, that's that's tough. Laxalt is, again, a, an election denier, big Trump ally, so it'd be bad if he won. He could. Nevada's a very strange state. But again, they do have kind of a Democratic machine still visible there that appeals to the working class. So it'd be interesting to see if that breaks or not. So we'll have to see. But also Herschel Walker is... <laughs> So much closer and closer to Hirsch, I mean, to Raphael Warnock than anyone would have imagined. It's almost like every time he gets accused of forcing a woman to get an abortion, it's like his poll numbers go up. I, I, it makes no sense to me. The fact that people look at him and still think he's a better option than Raphael Warnock is insane to me. But uh, this is, you know, I think uh, a lot of people have talked enough about this. But generally speaking, there are huge implications for these midterms. And Bart Gelman wrote a great piece in The Atlantic, I think it was about two weeks ago now, and he discusses how Republicans are likely planning to not only impeach Biden, but also a lot of his cabinet members, ranging from Mayorkas to Vice President Kamala Harris, for example. And Gelman just notes that while the Senate obviously would be very unlikely to actually convict Biden, there would be advantages for basically the Republican-led House to impeach him and impeach, 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 and basically just focused on impeaching a lot of people and investigating. And Gelman writes here in quotes, Already there is enormous demand for impeachment. A University of Massachusetts Amherst poll in May found that 68% of Republican voters think the House should impeach Biden. A majority expect that it will impeach him. Sorry, loud noise out there. Um, 
McCarthy would also be quite unlikely to stand against impeaching Biden, for example, because much like previous speakers like Paul Ryan, John Boehner, both were fairly center, but were controlled by the far right fringe, right? Um, Boehner wrote about it in his book. Paul Ryan obviously left it during the Trump era. And, you know, they were kind of being controlled by the either the House Freedom Caucus or the former Tea Party movement. Um, and so when these speakers have to keep the crazies in line, this means in this situation, in this era, that election denialism and, conspirac and conspiracies and angry, violent rhetoric would probably be centered around the, the party. And that means probably investigations into Hunter Biden, other things, and leading to just gridlock and investigations 24-7. Also, there's the border issues, right, which do exist. They might be a little bit, in my opinion, blown up, but there are border issues, no doubt. I could imagine Secretary Mayorkas could also be impeached. They could also go after Biden for Afghanistan, Kamala Harris for border issues, COVID restrictions, pretty much anything they want, anything that they really want to contrive, to be honest, because let's remember the party is really running on conspiracies. We saw that with the Nancy Pelosi's, I mean, the Paul Pelosi attack last week, for example. So that, so I mean, I, I think unless we have a miracle, that's what's going to happen in at least the House. Now, if the Republicans dominated in the Senate and pick up multiple seats, that would open up a whole new issue. Though, again, I'm not sure if they would convict Biden. But I think Gelman's point in this piece is just to talk about the chaos and how, you know, prior to the Trump era, impeachment was quite rare. And now it's probably just going to be every president is impeached by the other party. It's kind of just opened up Pandora's box and... Um, it, unfortunately, that means that the vulnerable and the people in need around the country and just everyone is not actually going to get government providing them services. Instead, it's just going to be bullshit. So that might just be the new era. And before we get into my thoughts on specific um, races for tomorrow, I wanted to start with just kind of my some, some thoughts and just ideas about the background on midterms in the U.S. Of course, like, like a lot of other things. The United States is a bit of an outlier in the frequency we vote in non-presidential elections. The New York Times has an interesting uh, article from this morning, and it basically talks about how in quotes here, Americans casting their ballots in tomorrow's midterm elections might be voting in their 30th or 40th contest in four years. In the same amount of time, a German citizen might vote in six to eight races. Put simply, the U.S. has an unusually high number of elections. The federal government alone holds elections every two years, compared with around every four or five years in other advanced democracies." End quotes. And the reason I bring this up is because some experts who study elections, turnout, results, and just voter dynamics bring up some interesting points, and they basically argue that the oversaturation of all these elections could actually hurt the process. And I know some people would say, no, elections hold people accountable, and I can understand that argument in theory. For example, Basically, having all these elections can actually exhaust voters and hurt the quality of governance. And what I mean is because it pushes lawmakers towards more campaigning, fundraising, and short-term thinking. This kind of makes sense when you think about how law, you know, most lawmakers are basically running the never-ending campaign, right? More money is put into campaigns than actually lawmaking. And I know that's generalized because there's obviously going to be lawmakers that do both. But... It is more about the election than the governing. And I feel like this makes our system somewhat unstable because there's no consistency. And in some elections, there's just not enough time for individuals to actually get things done. I mean, think about, I know it's not a perfect example, but think about like Raphael Warnock in Georgia, right? Just back in 2020, he beat Kelly Loeffler, what, a day before January 6th in that runoff? And he's already facing another challenge from the great thinker Herschel Walker. Of course, I'm being sarcastic. It's tongue in cheek, but... 
you get the point. And uh, I just... <laughs> I just think it's kind of crazy if every two years you have to go through this whole process again. And this is not me saying we shouldn't have elections, but there's a lot of countries that have less of them, and they seem to be more stable, I guess you could say. And, of course, the process is how it is, but it just seems redundant. And something interesting I read in this um, segment from the New York Times preparing for this is that it mentions that lawmakers constantly have indicated that they want to do things like fund the government, protect same-sex marriage rights, abortion codification, improve election security, blah, 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 blah. They usually don't have the time to do this, or to do so, you know, and you guys are going to love this, you know. About a month ago when Congress had that recess, it was actually designed, and the reason they had that recess was to give legislators time to campaign for tomorrow's election. That's pretty insane to me. But it's also fitting, right? And again, it just seems like it's hard to go for long-term change and help those who need it when it's always about the campaign, more elections, and trying to appeal to voters. Like, it seems like we're almost more worried about the superficial side of the process than actually helping people. People, sorry. And it's, it's kind of disappointing when you think about it. Anyways, I will probably do an episode on Wednesday about takeaways from the election. But today I want to focus on some of the ones that I'm really watching that have significant ramifications. And let's start in Pennsylvania, as well as an actual new controversy that I was reading about today before I started recording. And it's about, well, it's kind of problematic for getting every vote counted. And I probably would imagine there's going to be more conspiracies and misinformation and chaos around it. So starting with that little controversy in Pennsylvania... It looks like in Philadelphia specifically, reports are there's over 3,000 ballots that are basically at a risk of rejection due to some pretty damn lame circumstances that, to me, bring up questions of disenfranchisement. According to CNN, in quotes here, an election official in Pennsylvania on Monday said that 3,400 mail-in ballots were at risk of being rejected because of incorrect information, missing dates, or missing secrecy envelopes. This creates a really unfair disenfranchisement to thousands of voters. End quotes. And from my understanding, over a thousand of these ballots, ballots, sorry, Spanish, I always want to say the, but um, over a thousand of these ballots could be rejected because voters did not put the correct date or actually just forgot to put the date on it. And it's interesting timing. The background on this is that apparently Pennsylvania's Supreme Court came down on a decision that involved this just a few days ago. And the decision at a very inconvenient time, right before the election, barred local election officials from counting ballots with missing or incorrect dates on the return envelope. My assumption is that this was in response to 2020. Sometimes they're looking for issues that don't exist, and this seems to be one of them. And I I feel like if you're going to make changes like this, it needs to happen a little bit a little bit further back, not right close to the election. But anyways, the problem here to me is that this is such a stupid reason to not count these ballots. It just seems like an unnecessary reason, right? Dates. I mean, I understand you're looking for fraud, but that's not really fraudulent, is it? The other problem, though, is that if they did count these ballots, you know that the MAGA election denier truthers would see this as an example of fraud, and it would likely fuel more conspiracies, maybe lawsuits, get people angry and violent. It feels like this story out of, uh, out of Philadelphia just creates an almost impossible scenario for everyone, unfortunately. And 
It's annoying because it just seems like such a meaningless technicality that could end up being at the forefront of another damn election battle following the midterms. I know, it's so fun, isn't it? <laughs> There's just so much good news coming out of these. I, I always just... Every time I open up the news apps or turn on the news or read in the Atlantic, there's always something fun to add to these elections these days. Anyways, staying in Pennsylvania, there's a few races that obviously I've talked about before on the podcast, but I want to kind of focus on them again. So first we have the race for governor between, in my opinion, and I think just factually, the clinically insane and dangerous Doug Mastriano. He admits he was there on January 6th. He um, is definitely QAnon adjacent, or actually I should just say a QAnon believer. And he, is, and he also, you know, gets to pick the Secretary of State, so he would definitely make sure Democrats cannot vote, and he would, not cer- he would not have certified the 2020 election, blah, blah, blah. And he's running against the standard Democrat, Josh Shapiro, who has quite a good record in Pennsylvania. And I think he actually, now this is a whole other thing, I think he should run for president in 2024. But he's a very milquetoast, center kind of Democrat who's done a good job and is pretty popular. I think he was, let me pull it up here. Uh, I think Josh Shapiro was the secretary of, uh, sorry, the um, attorney general of, um, let me just pull that up. But I, I think he was the attorney general prior to, um, yes, he was the, he, he's been the attorney general since 2017. And he's actually done a good job. So basically it's him versus Mastriano. I basically do think that Shapiro wins, mainly because Mastriano is just kind of toxic. And he's popular with, you know, the very Trumpy MAGA base, but he's not really someone that can appeal to independence. Uh, definitely not. And Politico notes the race here has been a, just a campaign of contrast. It says here in quotes Shapiro effectively had no primary challenger, raised boatloads of money, and was up on television early and often. Mastriano, a far-right election denier, came through a messy primary with no professionalized campaign or fundraising operation to speak of, and he has received no help from national Republicans, which is surprising to me, by the way, and good. So that's good news for democracy if all this goes through. Now, I don't trust polls anymore. (laughs) I've been fooled twice in 2016 and in 2020, though in 2016 I did think Trump was going to win just because of global trends and the growing populism, but still, I don't trust polls. Anyways, I do think that Shapiro wins this, but you just never know. But I'm going with him. If I had to bet, I would bet on Shapiro. Anyways, the race between John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz, Dr. Oz, for the Senate in Pennsylvania is very different. It's a very different story. It's very close. And I mean so close that the race is not only within the margin of error, but it's almost completely tied. As of nine hours ago, 538 has both candidates at about 47% of the vote. But the interesting thing is, is that Fetterman has an advantage of plus 0.1. So non-existent advantage, in my opinion, just no advantage at all. And look, Oz is unlikable. He's definitely a carpetbagger. He's a snake oil salesman. He was really not very direct on any issues. I didn't like in the debate when he said, for example, that local politicians should make decisions on abortion. That was troubling to hear me say. And I just don't think he has any right to be... Oh, not right. That's a bad way to put it. But I don't think he has any need to be in this election. So obviously Fetterman has his own own issues for sure. But it's just kind of fascinating to me. I think though... And and I, I don't know if I'd like to bet on this one because it's so close. 
But in a sense, I would probably go with Oz because my instinct is that it will be Oz mainly because Fetterman had an awful debate. Oz has unfortunately attacked him on this stroke. And I know people may have connected with Fetterman and were thought he was brave to debate. But in a time when crime is a serious concern and the economy, it seems like Fetterman has some problems with things he said in the past. And Pennsylvania voters seem kind of willing to vote for someone, even if it's maybe not good for democracy. Again, I could be wrong, but I just don't see Fetterman winning this. Before we we get off of Pennsylvania, though, and move on to a few other elections, kind of in a speed round, um, I do want to note that the state of Pennsylvania actually cannot start counting until polls actually close on election night. So they can't even start counting until tomorrow night after polls close. So that's going to be even more chaotic, adding some more fun to this witch's brew. Sorry, it's a little late for Halloween stuff, but anyways, who cares? And this also means that there might be early results that look like a red wave, right? Because as we know, at least the trends have shown us that more Republicans are the ones who are going to be voting in person. And so early on, it may look like a red wave. I don't know what Oz does. I don't know what supporters do, but it could be a problem. And I wonder if this means that conspiracies and disinformation will begin. Who knows? Who knows? It's going to be interesting. But moving on, let's just look at Georgia for a brief minute. I mean, I've talked about Georgia, I think, enough at this point. But I do see Georgia being kind of interesting as well. I think the... I think, I mean, a lot of people think this, so it's not anything nuanced for me, but I think the Warnock-Walker race for the Senate will go to a runoff, and it could be into December before we know the results. I mean, both of them, I mean, actually not not, not Walker, but I, I know Warnock's talked about it. Again, we could see another early red wave. I could see Walker being the guy who claims victory. That would not surprise me whatsoever. Right now, and this just hurts me in my soul, is Walker is up by one point to Warnock. It's 47.7 to 46.6. So that is definitely runoff territory. No one's over 50. That's so close. And it, you know, I mean, it makes me question a lot of things when you think about how people would look at Herschel Walker and still vote for him. Like I said, it seems like every time he gets accused of another abortion, his numbers go up. I don't know. I, I just don't know. In Ohio, moving there, it's it's really a shame, but it's not looking good for Tim Ryan, who I think is a great candidate. And of course, there's conversations to be had about why the hell the Democratic Party hasn't actually helped him out more, put more funds into his campaign. Because to be completely honest, this is a campaign that I think could be, maybe still is, but probably isn't winnable. Um, this is, J.D. Vance is another kind of grifter, another guy that I don't think should be there. And voters don't really like him. He's quite unlikable. I don't know if you guys have watched debates by him. He's just not likable. And I think a lot of people see through the fact that he used to be condemning Trump left and right. And now he's like begging for Trump's forgiveness. It's just not everyone's an idiot. And we need to remember that. And Tim Ryan's been kind of neglected by the Democratic Party because I think he calls them out and he's distanced himself from them. And maybe that's what we need. Like, it's been an interesting phenomenon seeing Democrats running against the Democratic Party. And like, I mean, it kind of works because look, isn't that what Trump did? Like he was much more harsh on Republicans than Democrats, especially in 2016. So it's fascinating. But I just feel like Tim Ryan has been neglected and it's not looking good. He is down to the grifter J.D. Vance. 
Vance has 50.2% of the vote, according to 538, and Ryan has 44.7% of the vote. It's close. Like, look, for a state that went to Trump by significantly more points than this, I, I believe it was eight points, if I'm not mistaken, it's not awful for Ryan, but I don't know if you pick up over five percentage points this close when it's tomorrow, right? <laughs> Now, maybe I'm biased just because this is an emotional opinion, which I usually try to stay away from, but I think Tim Ryan could beat J.D. Vance in this. My instinct and my gut tells me he could because I, again, like I told you, I don't trust polls, and to me, Tim Ryan seems more like the guy who could appeal to swing voters in a state like Ohio. J.D. Vance doesn't. It just kind of depends at the end of the day if J.D. Vance's kind of fear-mongering message and economic populism stick. And I am not totally sure, but I would give I would give Tim Ryan a chance. Now I would not bet a kidney on this, but if it was like a five dollar ten dollar bet, which shows my uh, <laughs> shows my 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 hope here, but um, I think Tim Ryan could do it. So we'll have to see. I've already touched on Nevada between Laxalt and Cortez Masto, but I unfortunately think there is a chance that Laxalt, who is a significant election denier and Trump ally, could win. I, I really do think he could be win. It would be awful for Nevada, in my opinion, awful for elections. He's actually um, from where I'm more or less from. Like, I'm from the California side, but he's from the Nevada side in Reno. Um, I guess his family's kind of been political royalty somewhat in, in Nevada, in the northern Reno area. But this is a guy who I just don't think has much merit to him. And But he could win. It's really close. Cortez Masto, Latina, one of the first in the Senate in history. I think um, not a great candidate, but I think she's better than Laxalt, but I think she's going to lose. And However, I think it's worse in Nevada because in, in the governor race, I mean, the gubernatorial race in Nevada, because Lombardo, former sheriff, he's very popular with some people. He's not totally an election denier, but he's playing with it. He could beat Sisliak, the incumbent Democrat governor. Now, I don't really like Sisliak, sorry. Um, I don't like how he handled COVID. I can I think there's a lot of resentment for Sisolak and how he handled COVID. And right now Lombardo is up on Sisolak. I think it's by about two points. And I think Lombardo's gonna win because a lot of people associate Sisolak for the shutdowns. And we have to remember Nevada is a fairly working class state that relies on the casino industry and tourism. And Sisolak took a pretty hard handed approach to COVID. And even if it was correct which we can have a different debate about that. Even if it was correct, a lot of people, I think, single-handedly blame him for what happened, and that is not good going into an election like this. So that's going to be a very fascinating one to keep keep up with, honestly. Nevada is another just battleground for a lot of, <laughs> a lot of the chaos we're seeing in this country right now. Now, looking at another close race, moving from Nevada, there is one in Wisconsin that features Democratic Governor Tony Evers, the incumbent, against a Republican businessman named Tim Michaels. And <laughs> Michaels is my worst nightmare. He recently said Democrats won't win an election in the state again if he wins on Tuesday, which is a troubling thing. Maybe he misspoke. I don't think he did. I don't like that at all, I think for obvious reasons. Because I think Democrats and Republicans should not say those things. I know, call me crazy, but maybe you just want elections to work and whoever wins, wins. And if you don't like their policies, you run against them. Call me crazy. But I think Tony Evers should, and should is the key word, make it out of this with a victory. But it's alarmingly close. Uh, 538 has it as even. And 
I, again, like Wisconsin's an interesting state, right? Because you do have big urban areas like the Milwaukee area. But then again, you do have very, very rural areas. And I do, I do believe Tony Evers gets out of this, but it's going to be close. And if Michaels wins, it would be really bad for the sanctity of elections going forward. Because anyone who, what I've learned, I guess, during this era is that if someone tells you who they are, believe them. And um, yeah, Michaels has said some prob- problem, very problematic things about elections. And I don't say that lightly. So we will see against, again, Mandela Barnes versus Ron Johnson, Ron and on. I think that <laughs> that would have been an easy race. About a year ago, people said that Ron Johnson was going to lose that. Mandela Barnes, unfortunately, has been a proponent of defunding law enforcement. He's a little bit too liberal for the state, in my opinion. And Ron Johnson's probably going to win that one, which is, you know, somewhat, somewhat depressing. And let me, let me pull that one up. I wasn't going to talk about it too much, but if you look in Wisconsin right now, you have Johnson with 50, 50.4% and Barnes with 47 Again, that's close. It just really depends on turnout at this point. But that was an election that could have been won by Democrats. And again, the Democrats just seem to do electoral malpractice and just political malpractice, in my opinion. Not the same way as the Republicans. But sometimes you just wonder, do they even deserve to win this? Like when, when, when they claim that democracy is on the ballot, like Biden, you know, keeps saying at his speeches, his televised addresses that I don't think he really needs to do. It's, it's getting kind of old when then they do these things. So it's kind of exhausting, but that's a whole other story. Now, going back to a, a few other elections before we're out of here. In Arizona, <laughs> I think Kerry Lake is going to destroy it. I could be wrong, but I would bet a lot more than $5 that she will. She's only up, according to the polls right now, 2.6 points. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about Carrie Lake. is She's told all of her supporters that the elections are fraudulent, they're stolen, and not to vote by mail. So according to right now what we're seeing, the people that trust elections and have voted by mail and have talked to pollsters have probably said they're voting for Hobbs. The thing is, I think Carrie Lake, a lot like Trump, has a lot of silent minority or silent majority with her. And so the thing is, I think a lot of people on election day itself are going to turn out for her. And I think Hobbs is going to get her ass kicked. It's it looks close on paper right now, but I don't think it's going to be. I just have one of those feelings. I, that's just really in my instinct. Hobbs wouldn't even debate Carrie Lake. And maybe there's an argument for it. But I think she's an awful candidate. One of the worst I've seen in this cycle and Carrie Lake has that just tox- toxic appeal. I don't know if that's a good way to put it, but she has just this magnetic but toxic appeal, I guess. She's a movie star. Like, she really seems like the next Trump to me. Not Ron DeSantis, but her. Anyways, um, it's also interesting about Carrie Lake because there are literally people who voted for Mark Kelly over Blake Masters, Mark Kelly being the Democrat. But then they're also voting for Carrie Lake. Like, she has an odd appeal. She's an odd candidate. She was really popular in the Phoenix area as a TV host and a news anchor. And I just don't get a good feeling about this for Hobbs. And even if, even if it's close, Carrie Lake is going to claim victory. Like, we all know that's the case. So that's going to be one to watch. I'm worried about Arizona for, like, political unrest and some violence as well. Just looking at these poll watchers that are armed. Not a good situation right now. And luckily, Mark Kelly is still winning against uh, Blake Masters, who I think Blake Masters is another kind of anarchist libertarian, part of the Peter Thiel group, who I am just not a fan of. But he's only up by, Mark Kelly that is, is only up by about 1.6 points. And I do think Kelly wins, but I don't like those vibes either. 
thank God Minchum in Arizona, the Proud Boy linked guy who likes to retweet on Pinterest neo-Nazi stuff. Luckily, he will probably not be the next Secretary of State, so I guess that's good news if we want to celebrate a small victory. But Arizona is a weird, weird place right now, and um, there's not much else I can really say about that. I should also add, though, that Oregon is another, like, canary in the coal mine for Democrats just somehow finding a way to be toxic. The race between Kotick, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, and Drazen. So Kotick is the Democrat incumbent, Drazen Republican. It's fascinating because Kotick is only up by three points, which is really kind of surprising for Oregon. I, I know Eastern York, Eastern Oregon, sorry is conservative, but that's still troubling for a state that has not had a Republican governor in decades. Now, I'm not one of the ones who think, who thinks just blatantly that Drazen is going to win and be a Republican governor of Oregon, but because it's so close, I really don't have an opinion on it. I don't, I'll admittedly say that I don't know enough about Oregon politics, but it's just not good. Not, not, not good for Democrats, I guess, but it makes sense after you saw what's happened in Portland and everything since uh, George Floyd's death and their Somewhat lawlessness issues that are happening. So fun stuff there. And um, lastly, you guys are probably wondering why I haven't talked about Stacey Abrams in Georgia or Beto O'Rourke in Texas. And <laughs> that's because I think both of them should not be the stars they are. And I'm sure I'll get some hate for this, but they both have kind of celebrity politician status. But to me, they're both kind of losers. And let me explain. They're popular, but they're popular for losing. They've had some political success. And look, Stacey Abrams was good at mobilizing voters in Georgia. But she keeps running for governor, and she keeps losing. Also, she actually has touted election fraud lies as well. When Kemp beat her, she claimed fraud. Now she's saying if she loses, it's because of, I think it was inflation is a part of, like, sexism and racism and abortion issues. Like, she keeps kind of making up excuses for why she's not winning. Beto hasn't gone that far, but I think both of them are kind of losers that somehow are always really popular. And I don't think either one wins. That's pretty obvious if you look at the polls. So maybe voters in the DNC should realize that they must stop going for these type of candidates who don't have a track record of winning. Like, look, Beto keeps coming back. He ran against Ted Cruz. Look, it was close. Cool. Now he's running against Greg Abbott. Sorry, man. Like, I know people like you. Yeah, you have some good speeches on gun reform that I probably agree with, but maybe there's a reason why you're not winning. Same with Stacey Abrams. And it'll be interesting. I'm curious what Stacey Abrams is going to say after this, because I don't like Governor Kemp in Georgia that much. But if she claims that it was stolen again, like then it's like both sides are starting to do it, and I don't like to see that. Now, I think before we're completely out of here, there's just a few questions I think I have for this midterm. First, I'm just curious what Latino voters do. Not Latinx or Latinx voters, which the Democrats seem to really want to stick to, or not the burrito bowls that uh, Joe Biden's wife calls them, Jill Biden, uh, but Latino voters. I'm curious what they do in this election. It seems like they're kind of taken for granted by both sides, and they're not one monolithic block. You know, there's Puerto Ricans, there's Venezuelans and Cubans who usually go more conservative. Mexican voters that may be pro-abortion, but also are traditionally more conservative. It's a very fascinating block that I think just gets kind of used like a political football on both sides. And in 2020, we did see Latinos, especially in places like Florida and Texas, move towards conservative politics. 
I'm curious if that stays the same now with abortion and the Roe v. Wade decision. I'm curious. I'm also curious with all the rhetoric against immigration, busing people into Martha's Vineyard from Florida. I'm curious because if the trends stay the same, the Latino voting bloc, generally speaking, is moving more to the right, and it's kind of fascinating. My other question is, are voters willing to vote for low gas prices and to lower inflation over protecting democracy? There's a really interesting article in uh, Salon, and it's called, Is America Ready to Trade Democracy for Cheap Gas? That's fascism in a nutshell. Now, I would not go as far as that. I'm kind of, I've even, I'll even admit that I've been kind of wrong and always calling everything fascism. I think that a lot of Americans understand that democracy is in peril, but they also realize prices are high and they don't have the time to sit around and think about these issues. But I do think it is interesting that with the toxicity of some of these MAGA candidates, people would still vote for them over Democrats when, you know, we did almost have a coup attempt or whatever you want to call it on January 6th. And I think it is interesting that as long as there's a promise from the GOP, who, by the way, have no plan, it is fascinating that they still have more of an appeal. Someone goes, oh, Raphael Warnock or Herschel Walker. I think Herschel Walker would do a better job. And... It is an interesting discussion to be had about what happens when you're willing to give up democratic values as long as prices are low and the economy's good. That is on the road to fascism. I wouldn't say that's fascism completely, but it is a question that I'm curious to see. Are people willing to give up some of these things if it means prices are low? And what does that mean for the future of this country? Anyways, um, I'll be back after the midterms. Tomorrow's going to be interesting. Vote, vote, vote. That's all I can say. For my libertarian or anarchist friends, vote, though you probably won't. <laughs> um, anyways, I'll be back. Have a great day. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, Podbean, all that jazz. Thanks for being there here. Sorry, um, I'll try to be back more frequently. And have a great day.